Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 15, Frozen Frenchmen and Fiery Fields. Last time, Caleb, we talked about an alleged battle that may or may not have happened the way that it's recorded, where 18 Frenchmen held off an army of 700 Iroquois and they all died based on their ability to not throw a gunpowder keg over a wall. Yep. Potentially saving Montreal and New France from utter destruction. And word has gotten back to France. And the French king is sick of this. And he's decided to put on the glove or take off the gloves and take it to the Iroquois. And so he orders pretty much an extermination of the Iroquois at this point. Uh, the, the orders seem pretty clear that they really want to destroy the entire power of the Iroquois. And so something that has never happened before, the French are going to attempt to launch an entire army into the heart of Iroquois. Now, how many militia soldiers did we say were in the last battle? 18. 18. And how many soldiers, commissioned soldiers, is the King of France sending to the New World? Probably about 500, in addition to the people that are already there. So it's going to take them a little bit to get there. We mentioned that the Battle of Longsau happened in 1660, and it takes some time to raise an army and transport it across the Atlantic and supply it. Does it not, Caleb? It does. Uh, logistics weren't quite as caught up as they are today. You've got to clothe all these people, get them guns. These aren't just going to be uh, ragtag militia units like New France has. These are going to be regular soldiers with uniforms they're probably going to carry light cannon and top-of-the-line muskets as long as well as all their other gear. In the meantime, the Iroquois know that uh, relations have not been very cordial as of late. And we mentioned a few episodes back when the Onondaga had invited the French to come to their settlement. There was a very friendly Taradajo chief named Garaconte that was there. You remember him, Caleb? Mm-hmm. Well, he, in December of 1655, decides, let's try and make amends again. I know that things have not been really good the last six years, but let's head up here and see if we can get these things straightened out. And so he goes up to Quebec, and he brings along a prisoner, a guy named Charles Le Monet, who was captured the previous summer, and he wanted this to be a goodwill showing. Now, when I first saw this name, Charles Monet, if you recall a couple episodes ago, we talked about Father Monet, who came down to the Onondaga to make peace. He was one of the Jesuit fathers. There's no relation to this guy, Charles. Uh, but there are some pretty interesting things about him. He's just a footnote in this story. But this ransomed prisoner of the Iroquois actually went on to do some pretty great things for New France and North America. And not only him, but his kids, which makes me wonder if he hadn't been ransomed and saved. But uh, does the name... Pierre Lee Monet mean anything to you? Nope. <laughs> okay, well, this is the son of Charles Lee Monet. Pierre Lee Monet founded Louisiana. Like the state? Yes. Like the Louisiana Purchase, New Orleans, that whole thing? And also a place you may have heard called Mississippi. And he had another son named Jean Bastille Lee Monet who was the co-founder of New Orleans and also Mobile, Alabama. Mobile, Alabama? Mobile, Alabama. 
<laughs> Andrew and I are from, are from New York, so we like to make fun of uh, Southerners sometimes, and Canadians, and Frenchmen. Uh, but yeah, this guy, he is basically a founding father of New France and Canada, and his kids are, are founding fathers of these great places that are still around today in the Americas. All thanks to the mercy of the Onondaga uh, bringing him home. That's right. Wow. Very cool. So he brings him back and says, hey, let's make peace. I brought this guy back. Can we be good now? Wouldn't that be great? And the French said, yeah, thanks for bringing him back. They really weren't convinced. They thought that he was insincere, which is ironic because everything I hear about this chief says that he was the most sincere guy and nice and friendly towards Christian French and ends up becoming a Christian later on. And not only that, he learns to read and write in French because he wants to build good relations with them. And he says, quoted, saying that, how can you understand a people that you're at odds with unless you learn about them? So incredibly open-minded man. But you also have to remember that they don't look at their chiefs and sachems like the Europeans looked at their kings, that what they say go. You can have the honorable position of sachem or chief, but you still all have your own free will in their culture. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is that there's still mainly Mohawk and Oneida, but also some other people from other nations, and they're coming up and they're raiding into French territory and into remaining Algonquin territory. And also, at this point, I'm sure that the governor of Montreal already knows that the king has commissioned 500 professional soldiers to be sent over. So he's probably not thinking we need peace. He's probably thinking we can wipe all of these people out. Mm -hmm. So Garan Conte goes home, and then... The following year, soldiers start showing up. And by this time, we're looking at four to 500 new men have arrived, and they're thinking, okay, this is all we need. We're going to get these guys down, we're going to bring them down from Quebec, and we're going to get them to Montreal, and we're going to invade the Mohawk homeland. A man who was the general, he was named Tracy, and he was empowered by Governor Remé de Courcelles to attack. He left Quebec on January 9th, 1666, with up to 500 men, all with snowshoes, ready to attack. Okay, so you've just gotten this group of 500 men from France that have never been to Canada, and you're going to set out on foot in snowshoes... In January. In the middle of January. Beginning of January. Beginning of January. This sounds like a recipe for disaster already. Well, that's okay, because they learned from last time, and they packed a lot of warm clothes and a lot of tents, and a lot of food and provisions, and had a good baggage train to go along with them. I'm going to stop you right here, Andrew, because I have their supply list right here, and it says they have no tents, no provisions, ill-equipped. That's correct, because they were not Boy Scouts and absolute horrible planners. They had very little food, no tents. And men that have never experienced winters like this before. Or combat with Native Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Europe, they were still lining up and shooting each other at the time. Now, we mentioned that four or 500 men headed out, but while they were in Quebec, several dozen people had already gotten sick. People like to point out that the Native Americans were always dying of diseases. But Europeans died of diseases all the time, too. It's just that Native Americans had a, a lot more death rate. But measles, smallpox, all these other 
even colds and pneumonia, dysentery, dysentery, cholera, all these things affected them too. And so dozens of French soldiers died not only on the ships heading over here, but getting ready for it. And now they're heading out, like you said, in January. And who doesn't bring tents? I mean, I can understand that you don't want to carry a tent, but wouldn't the thought of every night I need to sleep somewhere? This goes to show you a couple different things here. Either they were so arrogant that they thought that they could just show up and march down there and destroy them all and they didn't need anything. Or it goes to show you that the governor, who was probably running things behind scenes, said, I want you gone now. I want you guys to start a march now. And some people might have been thinking, this isn't smart, but we're going to follow orders. But there's there's some poor leadership somewhere in this. Yeah. And maybe you're thinking, well, we'll strike them in winter while they're all holed up and they won't ex- be expecting a winter attack. That's probably what they're thinking, but That's they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be expecting a winter attack because it would be stupid. Yeah, that is true, though. I can see how the strategy could be, even if we can't kill them, if we can burn all their longhouses in the middle of winter, that could be a strategy that they could all freeze to death. Mm-hmm. But we're going to see pretty shortly that it's not going to be the Iroquois that are going to be freezing to death. <laughs> As they start heading out, now, if you go back to our map, uh, Montreal is just above modern-day New York, and then you go down and you get to a little bit. You've got the Richelieu River, also called the River of the Iroquois, and you get to Lake Champlain. And then if you follow Lake Champlain down, there's a little mini-river called Le Chute, and that leads into Lake George. And if you follow that up, Past Lake George, you can get down into Mohawk Territory, where the modern Mohawk Valley is, the Mohawk River, modern-day Schenectady, Albany. Now, the problem is, with the French, they did not go to our website, and they did not look at the map, if they even had a map. Because where do you think they ended up, Caleb? Do you think they ended up at the foot of a Mohawk town? Didn't they wind up, like, 50 miles west of Albany or something like that? They ended up in modern-day Schenectady, which at the time had branched out into a small Dutch town. Not at Fort Orange, but a little bit down. And yes, they were 60 miles off course from the main Mohawk town. Now, as they're doing this... So, that must mean they didn't bring a guide then, right? Like, that is correct, because they were supposed to leave with several Algonquin guides and auxiliaries. Uh, However, they were so impatient to embark that they left without them. So yes, they did not bring their GPS with them. Not only this, we mentioned no tents. So every single night, you're huddling in masses, digging out holes in the snow to lie down in on your mats, with the stars shining over you, sleeping out in the open in January. Even if you're fully fed, one night of that does not make a happy person. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about weeks this expedition is taking. To tell you... The average temperature, especially if we're if we're talking like Adirondacks region, Lake Champlain, uh, northern New York, southern Canada, in January, you're looking at a high anywhere from between 10 degrees to 25 degrees, and at night, anywhere from negative 20 degrees to 5 degrees. And for our international friends, we're talking about lows of about minus 10 and highs of maybe 10. So, not warm at all. And again, they didn't bring food. And unlike last time when they were just had 50 men going down on an expedition to Onondaga, they did not find any rotting buffaloes in swamps mm-hmm. 
or herds of bear because the bear are all hibernating. Yeah, and if, if you get one buffalo or one bear, you could probably feed 50 people for the day on it. But when you have 500 men, you'd need a lot of meat. They're facing starvation. And they finally show up and they, oh, we made it to a town. It's a Dutch town. They're not going to invade the Dutch. They're going to invade the Mohawk. And it shows, I think, very nicely on the Dutch that the Dutch gave them some food and some clothing, even though they're here to destroy their trading partners and their allies. Mm -hmm. And in other situations in our past episodes, they do what they can to ransom Jesuit missionaries and other French captives. So it it really does go to show you some character that the Dutch had. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they make it to this Dutch town, and they receive help. But then they realize they're in no condition to attack the Mohawk. I don't know if the Dutch said something like, oh yeah, the Mohawk, they're uh, they're 600 miles that way, or something, and encouraged them not to attack the Mohawk. It doesn't say. But regardless, the French realize that they can't attack the Mohawk right now. They're too weakened. They've probably already been found out. The element of surprise is gone. And so they start to turn around and head back. Still in winter. Still low on food. Still cold. And now you've got Iroquois people starting to flank them and look and see if there's anybody they can pick off on the way back. Kind of like... Napoleon's failed retreat. Napoleon's failed retreat was a little bit worse since he lost hundreds of thousands of men and just a small percentage made it back. They estimate that Corsell lost 60 men to cold and hunger without killing a single Mohawk. Now again, if we're looking at four to 500, we're looking at a, at a loss rate of about 13% for doing nothing which is a lot higher than in our previous episode at the Battle of Long So. Now, how would you like to be a soldier that has marched all the way there and has to turn around and go all the way back with nothing to show for it? Do you know how long this march took down to Schenectady and back? Yes. So they left on January 9th, and they returned on March 17th. So if we put it roughly in the middle... <laughs> you're looking sounds at horrible. You're looking at... Two months and a week, so a little more than a month each way, if you spent a few days recuperating with the Dutch. Two months in the coldest part of the year in New York. And you got to walk back to Canada. (laughs) Oh, that sounds terrible. It isn't totally a loss because the Mohawk realize that the French can make it there. So, yeah, the French are really stupid, but if they want to, they can make it into your territory now. So that starts... A whole problem. And they notice also that these these are new soldiers. These aren't coming from Quebec. They realize that France is powerful enough to send large armies from over the Great Sea if they want to. So even though they haven't done any damage yet, they start to kind of worry. If they just brought 500 here, could they bring more? Could they bring a thousand more? Could they bring thousands more? So once the Mohawk realized this, in both May and July, they send delegations to Quebec to try and instigate a peace treaty. They're like, okay, we're very glad that the French are inept. What if they're not inept next time? And so they send representatives from all five nations to try and hammer something out. 
but the French are still afraid that the Mohawk and the Oneidas are going to continue raiding. The problem is, like you said, Caleb, that you can't control everybody. Every person's their own man. And the main sachems are desperately wanting to hammer out some kind of peace. But you've got these young, arrogant men, just like today, can't be controlled, and they're going out and doing raiding parties. And so, what happens? So this group of emissaries is all there in New France now, trying, pleading for peace, uh, if some people would just meet with them. But some poor circumstances have made things a lot more complicated. Alexander de Tracy was the viceroy of New France. It's really hard to get somebody to make peace with you when he has just had one of his nephews killed and his cousin kidnapped and taken by the Iroquois. So he is kind of in a foul mood and not really feeling like he should make any peace. So he actually grabs the emissaries and throws them into prison. I don't know if that... Even if that happens, I don't know if that goes with uh, diplomatic protocol. No. Seems like a breach of it. Now, what is going on, Caleb? Why, why would they have Mohawk people doing raids when they're there trying to get peace? What's going on? It's just like we mentioned before. You've got the young warriors trying to win esteem for themselves and pride in their communities. And just like today in all wars, you've got some of the older, wiser men trying to pick thing, trying to make decisions for the good of the whole nation and community. And you have people going out and looking for their own glories. Which I can see the old people saying, do you realize what you've done? And I have a feeling that, that conversation is what happens because when they get there with this captured cousin of Alexander de Tracy, they say, we are taking him back now. Meanwhile, back in New France, de Tracy says, we are going to those Mohawk now. And so he gets a force of 300 men together and is getting ready to invade the Mohawk country to attack them. So this is in the middle of the summer. You've got this small new delegation going north, and you've got this French army coming south, and they meet in the middle, and they say, We are so sorry. We are horrified that this happened. Here is the prisoners that were captured in this raid, and we are on our way back up here, to make things right, and we really want peace, we apologize. This is not right. Now, the leader of this delegation is somebody that we've introduced before, Caleb, right? Yeah, a man of a bunch of names. Most commonly known in history is the Flemish Bastard. We uh, introduced him a couple episodes ago, right? Yes. Because we knew that he's going to be uh, popping in and out of our narrative for a while yep. at this point. Now... I kind of feel bad calling him the Flemish Bastard because we've mentioned that's not really what he called himself. If you recall, the Flemish Bastard, he was half Mohawk, half Dutch. He had a, a Dutch father and a Mohawk mother. Which meant that if you were born of the mother's line that he was considering himself fully Mohawk. But since he knew both Dutch and Mohawk, he was able to be a great emissary and was used in all manner of communicating with European nations. So he had his nickname, Flemmy, the <laughs> Flemish Bastard. He had a Christian baptized name, John Schmidt, uh, in English that's translated John Smith. Very original name. Was this the same one that met Pocahontas, Andrew? Only in the Disney version. Okay, I think that was a different John Smith. And uh, his Native American name, Kanakusi. 
So he's gotten up, and then these 300 men that are there to do the invasion say, seems like these guys are really sincere. I'm not going to attack and invade the Mohawk because our goal was to rescue prisoners, and they're bringing the prisoners back on their own. And we got the Viceroy's cousin back, so oh. why would we continue the invasion? So they all turned around and together went back to France. So, New France, I'm sorry. Yes. So as soon as they get there, they bring Tracy, his cousin, and the other hostages there and think they're going to be rewarded by the Viceroy. But he is not happy. No. In fact, it says that he was exasperated with these peace negotiations. And every time it seemed like they were getting something going, there was another raid. And he decided to launch a third invasion. And so on September 1st, 1666, the Intendant Talon sent Tracy and Courcel a memoir which stated the pros and cons. He recommended that there should be a punitive expedition into Mohawk country. On September 6th, Tracy fell in with his opinion and they assembled an invasion force of 1,300. They decided to move out later in the fall of 1666. Their goal was to attack all the Mohawk villages and destroy them, and then perhaps even continue on to the other nations. Now I'm curious, is this the largest group of European soldiers that have been summoned thus far? 1,300 men? Well, this is not exactly completely Europeans. This is a conglomeration of Algonquin, Huron, and other Native Americans that are joining up with them. But it's comparable to the force that was sent out the first time, but probably a little more. We're looking at probably about 600 regular soldiers. But I would say definitely when we're dealing with the Northeast, this is the largest force ever sent so far. Now, they learned their lesson, Caleb, and they decided to bring a lot of food this time. Are you joking? Yes, because of course they didn't. <laughs> Do they not want to carry it or something? They must just... It must be there was so much game that everybody just planned on shooting game as they went to feed themselves. Well, obviously they needed to send somebody that could shoot because they weren't getting anything. So they follow a route again. They're heading down from Montreal. And to be fair, this is not dead of winter. We're talking about... September, October, so the leaves are starting to change. Nights are cool, but it's not absolutely freezing. But still, they don't bring enough food. And so by the time they get to Mohawk territory, again, they're at the point of starvation. Do you remember back in our Three Sisters in Hunting and Fishing episode, Caleb? Mm -hmm. How the Iroquois were known for burning off the undergrowth and letting natural nut trees grow for extra food supplies and to make, it, make the thick trees almost like a park-like appearance in the forests. Yeah. Well, that's what saved the French because they show up in a chestnut grove. And if you recall, for those of you, uh, sorry to keep saying things over and over for those of you, but this was six months ago, but there used to be a tree here in the Northeast called the American chestnut, which produced nuts that look a lot like the buckeye or the horse chestnut. Those are toxic, but these trees that used to be here, which are now basically extinct, or like a smaller version of that called the American chestnut. Very eatable, very easy to get at, and a lot of nut meat as opposed to other nuts that are a lot of work to crack and eat. So they came across one of these Native American nut groves, and that's what saved them. They were able to pick them all off the ground and have protein and fat and calories to finish their march. So they finally come upon a Mohawk village. There are three main towns, Osinarion, Andagaran, Teonandigwin. 
When they come up to the first place, they're exhausted. Even the food you've got, it's just been nuts. You've been marching on this trek for most likely a month. Right then and there, Tracy orders them to attack. It's like, seriously, dude, you couldn't even, couldn't even let us rest for a night? Maybe they were worried that there were 700. <laughs> was Tracy marching with the army? Yes. And so he's out for blood because his relative has been killed. Yeah. It's never a good sign when a high-up politician joins the army and then starts... Mic- I can just picture the commanders of these men. And you've got this politician, basically, that has no war experience micromanaging you and your men. And so they come to the first main Mohawk town. And this thing is a castle. That's what they called them, a Mohawk castle. No, it was not built with stones, but it had outer palisades and then a catwalk around, and then they had giant bastions with water inside in case anybody tried to torch it. But we're talking about 1,300 people. The Mohawk are usually worried about dealing with small raids from people, usually in the dozens or low hundreds. Now we have 1,300 And so before this invasion had even come, they had gotten all the women and children out and to the other villages. And the men there defending say to themselves, we are not Adam Dallar. We are not here to die and make a last stand. There's 1,300 people here. And they leave. And the French come and begin torching the town. It takes a lot of torching so that you've got dozens of longhouses the palisaded walls, and then they start burning the fields. Now, what time of year is this, Caleb? This is late autumn. So they've most likely uh, peak of harvest, and a lot of the stuff has already been harvested and probably being stored in their storage buildings and longhouses. Mm-hmm. So the people have fled, but yes, you're burning all their supplies and their food storage in addition to their surplus, the stuff they've just gotten this year. And the French don't let up. They go town to town to town. If you go to our website, longhousepodcast.com, there's a map which shows in miniaturized the four Mohawk towns, and you can see them kind of in a line along the Mohawk River. So you pretty much just go from one to the other to the other. And so they burn three of the main towns doing the same thing, torch the fields, torch the buildings, torch the longhouses. They're not killing people. Just imagine that winter is coming and your food supply is running low. They also have a turned traitor. There's an Algonquin woman that was a captive of the Iroquois, and she was out for revenge. And so she starts showing them, leading the way. She literally grabs uh, Tracy by the hand and grabs his pistol and starts dragging him through the wilderness, leading him to the fourth Mohawk village to make sure that it gets torched too and not left behind. And so with pomp and circumstance, they come in and destroy the last village, and they hold a wonderful mass, thanking God for their great victory, and turn around and leave. We'll see that even though they killed very few, if if any, Iroquois warriors, this most likely had a really negative effect on them for several years, because I imagine it takes... It takes years probably to build up your villages to sustain you to, to plant your fields and build your longhouses especially this time of year all of these Mohawks that live in these villages are now basically going to have to go and live as refugees in the surviving villages 
or with their clan members in some of the other nations. And that's most likely what happened. The Oneida are very close by and the Onondaga aren't far. We had also mentioned in our Three Sisters episodes that it was practice that people would try and save three years worth of extra grain in corn supplies in your um, houses. The reason being for situations like this. If there was a famine or some kind of war or some kind of accident, you could help support these people. And so the Anadaga and the Oneida most definitely helped them out, gave them shelter for the winter, gave them food. And the Mohawk did bounce back and rebuilt the villages on the other side of the river in the following years. But it definitely doesn't help. Can you imagine fleeing your town with nothing? Just just the clothes on your back. That's all you have. Run and flee. And now you're refugees uh, out of the mercy of your brothers and sisters from the other nations. And this makes a big statement because none of the other nations want to risk this happening to them. The Mohawk are now put in a dangerous situation right before winter. And this is going to encourage everybody to make peace at this point. Yep. Back in New France, all these emissaries, there's been like three delegations sent to France now. Even the the Flemish bastard is up there, and he's been imprisoned while the army's away. And when this army marches out, they do a whole military parade in front of all the captured Iroquois to show them the power and the might of the great king of France. And the Flemish bastard makes an appeal, you know, don't kill my wife and my family. After this happens, they come back and they tell these emissaries here that are captured, they said, here's what we want, a peace. We don't want you coming up here anymore and raiding. We want you to have Jesuit missionaries come down and teach you guys about Christianity and probably our culture as well. And we want you to send several families up to Canada to stay with us so that we can take care of them. Ton-in-cheek being hostages, living up there so that if there are any hostilities again, there's uh, people to uh, take it out on. They agree to all these terms. Uh, it's pretty much a, a, a unilateral surrender on the part of the Mohawk to make sure that this happens. This is not the end of the Mohawk by any stretch of the imagination. It's merely a setback, but it does humble them for a while and New France thinks that they're the big kid on the block now. That's going to be short-lived for them. But for the next 17 years, things are going to be relatively quiet. Right, Caleb? The, uh, the Flemish bastard is going to end up moving up to Canada, and he ends up becoming a Catholic himself. Hmm. Which seems odd, but that's what happened. I wonder if they're going to call him by a different name. Well, in a few episodes... <laughs> I, I was reading uh, some writings the Jesuits said about him, and they said he was like the biggest scoundrel, most immoral swine I, they'd ever met. Or I believe the quote was, he was a half-breed son of a pagan mother and a heretic father. Yeah, I had another quote where they said he was the most deplorable, sinning swine or something like that that they had ever met in their lives. And who knows how much of that is hyped up, or how much of it could be true. If you're a diplomat, sometimes you have to bend several ways to make things happen. I don't know. In a few episodes, we're going to find out that he's going to turn coat and join the French 
and lead an expedition now to the western door. We see that the Mohawk are the keepers of the eastern gate, and it's been breached, and he's going to help lead a raid to attack the Seneca. But we'll get to that in due time. Did you have any other tidbits this week, Caleb? Uh, let me check here. A note from Talon to uh, Colbert is kind of a, a summary of how the mission went. And the letter goes something like this. He starts off lamenting to Colbert that, the, sadly, the Iroquois ran away from us because they were cowards. And uh, I wish they hadn't because then we could have had a double victory by killing them and capturing them. And if we had, we could have sent them all to the galleys. What was he going to do with, like, what were his plans if he, to for the kept the captured slaves to put them on the galleys and ship them back to Europe, right? Yeah, use them as rolling slaves. Like, think of the movie Ben-Hur, that kind of stuff. And in a few weeks, when we talk about Dinanville, he's going to do that to some of these Iroquois. So much for the honor in war, right? War is hell. Yep. But it seems like they're breaking every kind of diplomatic protocol and... One thing I notice, and I wonder if it's our human nature, but when I hear about the Iroquois bringing it to the French and killing them, I I think to myself, come on, I wish the French could just rise up and defend themselves and uh, con- you know defend themselves against the Iroquois heroically. And then the French come in and do it to the Iroquois, and I start to think, come on, guys, can't you defend yourselves? The the heroes must arrive, uh, arise, and you must defeat the French. So you always end up cheering for the one that's being oppressed. But it keeps switching back and forth depending on who has the power at the time. As we said before, they're not even close to being done. They're going to be around. They're not going to go the wayside of history. They're going to survive. They're going to live on. That was just one round in the boxing match, and France got that one. Mm -hmm. So tune in next week to find out what's going on in the South. Because as this is happening, you've got the Dutch and the English getting involved with each other. You've got the Susquehannock, who we've barely mentioned. They're going to get in a long, drawn-out war with the Iroquois. And also, maybe somebody we haven't mentioned yet, down the New Sweden. That's right. Wait a second. Sweden? Where the heck are the Swedes coming from? Didn't you know of the new prosperous colony in the Americas of New Sweden? Seriously, the Swedish are coming? Yeah. And, And they're going to mess everything up? Well, I don't know how much they're going to mess up. I don't know. I don't think they're going to be along too too. They're going to be around long enough to mess it up because the Swedish are going to show up and give the Susquehannock guns. And that's going to be a problem for the Iroquois and the English. Tune in next time when we talk about New Sweden, New Amsterdam, New England, New France, and Old Susquehannocks. And try to fit it in a 30-minute podcast. Thanks so much for listening, folks. If there's anything else that you've ever wanted to know, feel free to ask us. We respond to 100% of all messages we get. You can message us on Facebook, and while you're there, like us on Facebook. That's right. We will be very quick if you ask us a question to Google it and get you the answer very quickly. Yeah, we're good at that. <laughs> also, if you've appreciated us and appreciate us enough to just take 30 seconds of your time to go on iTunes and leave us a review... We would really appreciate it. Like we've said in the past, just one review a week helps us get bumped in the ratings. So if you like the show, we don't ask for any money. Just a a review really helps. That's all we ask. And in return, we will be sure to post your username on our board on our website. And you can be an official member of the extinct Wild Sweet Potato Clan. We're trying to make a comeback. 
Feel free to listen to us any way you want. Share it with your friends and family. You can listen on iTunes, Android, our website, and iHeartRadio. And don't forget to check our website, longhousepodcast.com. Bye, everybody.